So now for the this following part of the um the pod episode, we'll we'll shift topics a bit and talk about your journey with the Quran specifically, and um your different life experiences. Uh, before we ask any other questions, I wanted to know what your view is about memorization of the Quran, because I myself had a chance to experience memorizing the Quran at a boarding school, actually. So the way we would go about memorizing was by spending a lot of time focused on doing this for a few hours, and each person would memorize at their own pace. So we all started memorizing from Jews 1, and it continued from there. Some of us were ahead by a little bit, while others took longer. What's your opinion on this method of memorization? Is it better to just memorize and not understand what we're exactly reciting as well? Okay, old me would have said, Yes, you should memorize without understanding. New me, now me, says, no, understand it. Ah, uh, okay. Understand it. Yeah. It's nice to have different opinions though, right? You guys, you guys are going to be interviewing different scholars and other ones are going to say different, different things also. Mm. But, yeah, but but new me, like me right now, would say, if you're not a Hafiz, good. If you only know one page of the Quran and you've understood it, and you've gained four things from it, you know how to read it or memorized it, right? You've changed your ethics according to it, meaning you made you change your ethics. Ethics... Ethics is different than understanding, right? Ethics is your own personal practice, like how you deal with yourself and your people around you. You change your ethics according to it. Number three, you understand what the verses are saying. And number four, you're able to project what those verses are saying in your future endeavors. Until you got all four down for that one ayah, dude, don't move ahead. Would you, would you though, differentiate between someone young, perhaps five, six years old, who's not at um, at a level where they can intellectually can, like uh, understand everything to a deep level, if, if that's correct? Um, or like, would you differentiate between someone who's young and still a child and someone who is a teenager or older? No, I won't. I won't, I won't, I, I, I probably wouldn't, um, no, I wouldn't differentiate at all. I was teaching my five-year-old translation of Surah Al-Baqarah. So could you tell us some experiences you've had, like memorizing the Quran and all that? Well, well, when I memorized, I memorized, you know, the way you talked about, right? Went to boarding school, had to sit down and memorize. Everyone starts with the first chulas and kind of go to the end. So I, 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 that's, that's how I did end up. That's how I memorized the Quran. And there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of pressure on me um, that I need to finish it within three years. Um, and you, you guys can relate to that. I don't know, maybe. The reason that pressure was there, mm -hmm. even though it's even though the pressure is not there, it's like no, take as long as you want. But that person finished it in two years. You see, the one who finished it in six months is completely praised, compared to the one who finished it in ten years. Didn't it take like three years for for one Sahabi to memorize Surah Al-Baqarah? Like honestly, so <laughs> what I'm saying is it's a it's a flip scenario. I don't I don't I don't like it at all. But whatever. The mm -hmm. pressure was there. I ended up finishing my memorization in three years. I did it. Hooray. But like, 
but like what I, um, I, I would never put myself or my kids through that again, because it was a lot of pressure, a lot of memorization. It was putting it into, again, keep in mind that my perspective is a lot more different than probably 100% of the people you're going to talk to. But um, I would never do this again at all. I would not even send my children to memorize like this. I would focus on one way. Why? I'm going to die. I'm going to die at some point, right? When I'm going to die at some point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to ask me. <laughs> I'm going to say what? I focused on like one thing versus the other. I mean, you, you, how many hufaz that we know who don't understand the Quran? How many hufaz that we know who don't implement the Quran into their life? I mean... I can go on giving stories, which I'm not going to, but yeah, we all, we all know. Mm. So what did it feel like when you, like when you finished memorizing the Quran, like on the day, because when I, back when I was memorizing, I couldn't like complete memorizing the Quran. So I was curious to know what it felt like when you officially well, like finished memorizing. What? When, when I finished memorizing the Quran, I felt good. I felt accomplished. I felt happy. Um, I felt like I did something well. <laughs> it was, it, 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 it's, it's, it's an accomplishment in itself, right? It is. I mean, you finish the whole Quran, you finish memorizing it. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. accomplishment. Um, going from beginning to the end, it's got its own, it's got its own, uh, depth connected to it mm. um the first year i finished i let the rawi that year and I've, mm. i let the rawi every single year since since then um only recently i stopped letting the young hofaz lead now uh and intimidating them from the back by just standing <laughs> there but <laughs> but it was a good feeling it's a good feeling when you finish when you when you get through it and when you finish memorizing it yeah mm. So since you were able to finish memorizing, how did you maintain that memorization? Since I moved from my home country, Indonesia, I haven't been able to like maintain very well of like my memorization. So I'm so so now I'm gonna I'm gonna talk traditionally. I'm not gonna mm. talk because remember I said that I would not do that again, right? Mm. Memorization would be different. But the way I maintained it was I used to read five pages a day. Oh, that's it, just five pages a day. People say you should review 10, 20 pages every single day. You really don't need to. Five, five, five pages is more than enough. Just be consistent, though. Mm. Um, five pages a day, meaning like Monday to Friday, five, five, five pages. And uh, man, that's about it. You don't need to read Saturday, Sunday. I mean, no, read Quran, but like <laughs> you don't need to make that part of your regular routine. So moving to a slightly different topic, what made you interested in the Qiraat? Um, it was an elective. And I was like, hey, that's cool. Let's study it. And that's honestly the truth. It was an elective. But when I started studying it, I realized, whoa, it goes pretty deep. And then my, 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 it's what's the reason that I, um, the reason that I took on that elective was because it had to do with Quranic recitation. 
And I had a good voice when I was reading. So I was like, hey, you know what? Let's do it. I would I would be the perfect candidate for this. So I kind of got in and I did it. And I would I went ahead and I studied it and I went deeper into it. And then since then I started teaching it as well. Yeah. That was that's <laughs> that's the main reason why I actually did it. But then after that, I got more deeper into the studies of Qur'at and I kind of delved um, very deep into the science behind it, Qur'anic recitation, where it originates from, something that a lot of people haven't gone through, though. And since then, Alhamdulillah, Allah has made me an authority in the variant readings. I've had a lot of scholars study under me as well. To this day, many scholars study under me. Um, and um, it's it's nice to have scholars study from from a beginner like me, so it's cool. Could you explain the Qur'an for someone who's not familiar with them? Yeah, the variant readings are basically how the Prophet wasallam. the Prophet recited the Qur'an the way he read the Qur'an, right? But because the Qur'an is the word of Allah, um, the Prophet wasallam allowed different readings for different people. Um, we're not talking about major differences, major differences in dialect or some, you know, sometimes you have one word in English that means something in one country and another country means something else. So there's a different synonyms that were allowed to be recited at the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He allowed them all um, because he was trying to get everyone to read the Quran. Um, and that's the variant reading. So the study of the variant readings is under, is studying the, um, the recitation of the Quran as was recited at the time of the Prophet ﷺ by himself and the neighboring countries uh, or the garrison towns, mainly Kufa, Mecca, Medina, Basra, and Syria, and how they recited the Quran in those particular areas because that's where all the major Sahaba kind of traveled out to, right? So how they recited. That's what the variant, that's what the science of Qur'at actually is. And when you study the Qiraat, it becomes a lot more, it becomes interesting because you start to see, whoa, um, in, in Makkah, they read it this way. In Medina, they read it this way. The same verse, they read it this way, like this in Kufa. So when if a person is studying the Hafs recitation, for example, what normally people read, the regular Quran recitation, they're basically reciting the Quran the way, um, the way that was more prominent in Kufa. It's actually not from Medina. It's a Kufa. The Kufan... Um, like um, reading, which was allowed by the Prophet um, as well, by the Sahaba, these were all allowed. So um, when you do the variant readings, you actually go and you study it from the different different areas. How did they read in Sham? How did they read in like Syria and Damascus? And how did they do it in Medina? How did they do it in Makkah, etc.? What would you say is the benefit of the subject? The benefit of the subject is that you will not understand what the what the recitation of the Quran actually is if you haven't studied the variant readings, because a lot of your your tafsir, a lot of mo, everything that you, everything of your Islam is originating from the Quran, right? And your Quran originates your your Quranic recitation is the one reading in Kufa. So if you actually had the reading of, if, if you actually look at what we follow as Muslims or what Muslims tend to follow and then you or trace it back, you'll find that there's some sort of variant reading that connects to it. And when Islam was being codified, they 
we talked about codification in the beginning, right? So when Islam was being codified, um, they were using the Quran to codify it, right? And the Quran that they were using was inclusive of the variant reading. There wasn't only one recitation that they were looking at. So it's um, anyone who's becoming a scholar, it becomes important. If you want to be a traditional scholar, it becomes important to know the variant readings. Otherwise, your knowledge is going to be incomplete because you're going to think that this originates from the Quran when actually, sure, it does, but it's based on a variant reading. And it's a whole science. And um, the second major benefit is that you, you won't understand what Tajweed actually is until you've done the variant readings because Tajweed is a subset of the variant readings. And the variant readings are a subset of Arabic grammar. What would you say is personally to you a profound Qur'an difference that affects, uh, that adds layer to meaning? You, it, can affect, it can affect the meaning. Um, I, won't, I won't say it adds layer to meaning because adding layer to meaning means that um, it won't. Adding layer to meaning means that you can take both readings and then interpret them and create a bigger picture out of it, right? Like, uh, um, for example, um, owner of the day of judgment versus king of the day of judgment. You're like, oh, well, every king is an owner, and every owner is a king. So technically, Maliki, Maliki, Omidin, you can put owner and king. Um, you can look at it like that, like project an opinion that way, right? So one reading says Maliki, Omidin. One reading says Maliki, Omidin owner of the Day of Judgment. Another one says king of the Day of Judgment. So you can be like, well, a layered tafsir would be, well, over here we're talking about the owner and an owner is going to be the king, so therefore it's king, owner, one big thing. You get the point? But that's not how it was viewed, viewed classically. Classically, they either they translated it as either king or they translated it as owner. So the ones who were translating as owner, they were like, it means owner, not king. And the ones who are translating as king, they're like, it means king, not owner. So the layered translation would happen a lot later on when you have access to like all the material, right? Versus when you don't have access to the material, you're only going to be projecting it or translating it based on how you see it or whatever. What would you say to non-Muslims who use the variant readings to say that the Quran is corrupted? Uh, I would um, depends which non-Muslim we're talking to. What religion are they from? Um, but the, to say that the Quran is corrupted based on variant readings is a little bit of an an amateur argument. It's a, it's a um, it really depends on the question that they're asking. Um, so someone says the the variant readings proves that the Quran is corrupted. The question I would simply ask them is, give me an example. Like, honestly, give me an example um, that the Quran is corrupted based on the variant readings or, or just based on the fact that there's variant, there's a variant reading. The variant readings are not compromising the message of the Quran. They never do. Right? They never compromise the message of the Quran. The Prophet said, um, whether you, like, he gave an example, you can say, Halumma or Ta'ali. Halumma means come here. Ta'ali means come here. They're both synonyms, right? It's not like it's not like in one case we're saying eat an apple, another one saying eat an orange. No, we're saying eat an apple or eat, I don't know, a sib or something, right? Using the same thing, the same word, 
right? Just just a different word that you're using to talk about the same thing. Um, sometimes the translations can become a little bit different, but Uthman bin Affan, radiallahu anh, he eliminated all of this at that time where he says, you know, this was allowed at the time of the Prophet, and now we're only going to be doing it this way. And they codified it in one particular way, and they said, this is the only way that's allowed. So there's not... Um, if there's examples, then sure, we can we can dissect and look into some examples and stuff. But if there's not many examples, then um, it just becomes a hypothetical conversation. Oh, there's variant readings, therefore it's not true. Hold on. That's actually not true. The fact that there's variant readings means that it's more true. You get the philosophy there? You don't understand? No, not really. All right. Um, you come to a buffet and you brought grapes and someone else bought oranges and someone else bought apples and someone else bought everyone bought different different fruits someone says this shows the fact that the meal was corrupted but the meal happened though right there was fruits there right so are you trying to deny the fact that the Quran exists based on variant readings you understand Variant readings actually publicizing it for you, the fact that it did exist. There was variant readings there. So, dear person, you're saying variant readings are saying that the Quran's corrupted? Okay, sure. Let us assume that the variant readings completely corrupted the Quran. Are you denying that the Quran existed then? Because your argument is literally saying that the Quran did exist, but it was corrupted. And if the Quran did exist and is corrupted, well, go look for the correct one. Oh, but we don't want to find the correct one. And the fact that it's corrupted means that we should completely forget about it and throw it into the garbage. Knock yourself out. You know what? I'll stick with the corrupted version if I want to because it's more closer to the truth than you're completely denying it. You understand what I'm saying? You, 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 get, you get the... It's like someone saying, I don't believe in God. Well, the fact that you thought about it means you do believe in God. But look at the major theme. The fact that the fact that you're like, oh, there was a corrupted meal there doesn't deny the fact that the meal actually happened. There was food there. People were eating food. So what are you going to do? Not eat food anymore? I'm not going to eat food because it's corrupted. Okay, don't. I'll eat food. <laughs> the word of God is not corrupted. This concept of corruption happens. Um, this concept of corruption happened post post colonial um, rigidity where everyone thought everything needed to be uniform. Everything had to be one way. It has to be one, 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 one. And remember I talked about, um, right in the beginning, I talked about classical versus traditional. In the traditional, there has to be only one approach. And maybe four people are going to have differences, but differences within one madhab or one ideology. In classical, you wouldn't have that. People have differences on major things, right? Um, which would be, which would, which would have a major... Uh, which would have a major range. We're talking if if we're looking at the if if we're looking at the variant readings of the Quran, who 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 is anyone to say that in the Eastern world, which is a very holistic world, um, there was no room for like there was no room for a menu. Like, who's, who's, who's anyone to say, there's no room for a menu. You're not allowed. You, I'm going to go to the restaurant with you, and you can only order the lamb. Like, dude, I want chicken. No, you only order, order the lamb. There was a menu there. And this is proven through poetry, proven through 
through everything that a person stands up and is saying a poem. I'm saying this poem, A, B, C, D, whatever. And someone says, oh, you know what? Why don't you change B to D? And they'll be like, it fits better. They'll think about it. Oh, yeah, you know what? That works. And they'll change it up. It's very, very normal that it wasn't very rigid. But look at it now. Now everything has to be very, very rigid. It has to be one way. It has to be one approach. It has to be one ideology. It has to be one everything, which is post-colonial rigidity, which caused this. So now when people come up, they're like, how can you have multivariate readings of the Quran? But if you went back to that time, they're like, how can you not have variant readings of the Quran? For them, it was like, yeah, it's completely normal. For us, it's not normal. For them, it's like, how can you eat? Like, it's something normal culturally for one culture can be completely alien for another culture, but it doesn't automatically mean that culture is false. Does that make sense? In other words, for them, the status quo, or for them, the norm is, yeah, we, this is what we do. We, we do this. We, we throw arrows in the air or throw birds in the air, and we do jumping jacks every morning, 45 of them. You know, like, it's very normal for us. People are like, oh, my God, why are they doing all of these weird things? But it doesn't make that false. And post-colonial Islam was very rigid, so rigid. It had to be one way, my way or the highway. And the colonialism caused this. But classical religion, until even traditional, um, until colonialism, still allowed variants. But you still see variation. You still see differences, like um, in some texts um, from the Ottoman, um, like fiqh books, where they would say a Hanafi is not allowed to marry a Shafi'i and stuff like that. Like you'll see texts like that. And when you see texts like that, you see that the rigidity was there, but it became a lot more rigid now. Like, think about who owns Islam in North America. Honestly. Who does? Which organization? Huh? Yeah, Right, right. There's no question. I can just say it. And you're. I can say the question... And you're going to be like, they don't, no one owns Islam. Allah owns Islam. But your other side of the brain is like, but they have a monopoly. They have all the money. So it creates a rigid system. When the Prophet passed away, was there a central pope? No. Was there a central church? No. Difference of opinion? Completely cool. So basically what I'm saying is that mindset was very different than this mindset. Now it is if you come up and say something... For example, you know, like um, a lot of what we talked about today in the last hour and a half, right, is is a lot of things that probably you won't hear anywhere else or concepts or perspectives. But because you guys are chill, you guys are young, you guys are going to, you know, um, you know, talk to people, etc. It's okay. But is this something that you would tell the general public? Or not general public. Is this something that you would publicize in your masjid, maybe? A conversation that we had on memorization? Like, no, don't get kids to memorize this way. Make sure they memorize it, learn this, learn that, learn these four things before they move ahead. You can't say that, right? Because it's a monopoly. So when there's a monopoly, you literally have to follow the monopoly, the way to get through to them. But classically, that wasn't the case. So that's why someone comes out and is talking about 
what basically talking about these things well you know variants and multiple differences etc that was the norm at that time it was completely cool to have variations not cool now because we don't like variations we hate it when someone does things different from us we judge them go look at that sister not wearing hijab astaghfirullah or look at that brother who's wearing shorts that are going above his knees or something astaghfirullah right completely judgmental and that's just the mindset that many of us have. Imagine, imagine if you were to stand, if you were to go to um, a few years ago, if you were to go to like a like a conference, Isna, Ikna, whatever conference, a major conference, and you had a person coming in wearing shorts, long shorts, and a t-shirt giving a football. Compare that to a sheikh who's wearing a tawb, an Arab garb. Which one would you feel is more khatib worthy, honestly? Probably you, get, you get the point? Yeah. And that's the point I'm trying to make. Something that was norm at that time, variance, difference, is completely cool. Right? Compared to now, it's like, no, it has to be this way. So that's to give you some perspective on that answer. What would you say is the relationship between the Qur'an and the seven Ahruf? The, there's a lot of difference of opinion traditionally on what the seven ahruf actually mean? Um, so much on it. You probably read articles and books online and stuff like that. But um, the 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 in my idea, the word ahruf actually means. I go back to what the hadith scholars have said that seven ahruf means um, many variants or many synonyms. So the Quran is revealed on many synonyms, meaning you're able to say this or that. You can say, I don't know, think of a synonym. You can say no, this word or that word. You're allowed to you're allowed to do that, and that's what that's what that that's what that meant. And a lot of the synonyms remained within the variant readings now, and a lot of them were were abrogated or taken out by the end of the Prophet ﷺ's life. And this is the predominant opinion. When he compiled it, he put an end to all of this, and then he created one system in one way. And that's the that's the that's the opinion of the the the, the Jamhur, um, scholars of Hadith, as mentioned by Ibn Kathir as well. Again, I'm not elaborating on this opinion because of time, but that's kind of along the lines of what what it is that the Quran is revealed on many synonyms, and the Prophet allowed different things to be read, and near the end of his life, a lot of them abrogated. And Uthman bin Affan also put an end to it as well when he compiled it. So, um, Sheikh Uthman, let's shift from your experiences studying the Quran to now teaching the Quran. Um, like when you made this shift from being a student, I mean, you're still, you still consider yourself a student, which is a very good thing. But now to also teaching the Quran... Um, how has that affected your relationship with the Quran and what new things did you need to learn and what methodology has that led you to adopting? Um, to be uh, completely honest, um, in the beginning, when I first started, I'll, I'll put my teaching into, into like climbing a mountain. When I started teaching, I was like, 
oh my God, everything I learned, I have to put it into practice. Not, not put into practice, sorry, I have to learn it properly. So I'm, because as a teacher, you got to know what you're teaching, right? So as I'm teaching it, I had to put everything into um, perspective in my head. And it's like climbing a mountain. And as I was climbing, climbing, I'm teaching. I became a better teacher. I became a really good teacher. I was such a good teacher. And I felt like I knew everything. I made it to the top. And then when I made it to the top, I kept on teaching. I've been teaching for such a long time. Oh, God, I'm old. But <laughs> I kept on teaching, kept on teaching, kept on teaching. And eventually, the more I was teaching, the more I started questioning everything that I was teaching. And it brought me right back to the bottom. Well, it brought me right back to the bottom. Then I started to realize that a more effective teacher is someone who personalizes. When I started to personalize it, I literally hit even more rock bottom. For example, if I'm teaching someone a tafsir or verse of the Quran, I cannot be an effective teacher of tafsir if the whole thing is theoretical. I can only be an effective teacher of tafsir if I've literally experienced it myself. You know what I'm saying? So if the Quran says, um, what's the verse of the Quran again? So I'm working on right now, by the way. Uh, no, what's the verse? Um, oh, man. In Surah Al-Jumu'ah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if you, uh, God, give me a quick second here. I can't, re I can't remember. Um, <laughs> like, like those verses where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, well, if you really love if you really love Allah, or if you, um, not love Allah, but if you love the hereafter, etc., along those lines, and then, tamannawul mawt. Have you heard of that term? Tamannawul yeah. mawt. So what does tamannawul mawt actually mean? I can make it completely hypothetical for you guys. For example, what does tamannawul mawt for, for you mean? We need to crave death. Right. Is it personal to you guys? What does that mean even? That's still a bit abstract. Like, how do you crave death? Uh, in what sense? Right. It's abstract for every one of you, right? So what I'm doing is I believe that it's not abstract. But it is abstract for me in my head right now. So I'm going to go into situations where I'm going to try to understand how, because the Quran is not abstract. Is the Quran abstract? No, the Quran is clear. Mubin. So therefore, there's some points within the Quran that if we consider them, if we don't know how to appreciate it or put it into our life, then we're going to really need to try to understand how to put it into our life. So how can a person, how can you and I actually crave death? And I have some, I have some things that I, I do. No, it doesn't require digging a grave in my in my backyard and going lying down, and that's weird. But, the, <laughs> but like, there's there's ways to understand of how to embrace death, understand death, so that when the time comes, you ain't scared of death no more. So, as a teacher, what is hypothetical? We should all crave death. Go to the graveyard and keep on 
scaring yourself or whatever, however typical person does it. I'm not at that point anymore. Remember I said that I've, well, during my studies, during my teaching, I started basic and I started climbing and I thought I was the best. And then eventually I started trying to personalize it and then I dropped to the bottom. And now I'm at the bottom right now. And the bottom, it's this huge mountain to climb. And the bottom part for me is, well, I need to start to personalize it. Every single verse of the Quran. Now, if I personalize it, if I teach you guys how to crave death in a way that you would probably never believe, you'd understand that verse completely differently now, right? Very different. And um, there's a, like, I, I talk about this a lot within my, not just the Seer class, but like even the Jweep class and stuff like that about personalization and tips on how to personalize because everyone experiences things differently and how to understand it. And then at that point, you become a way more efficient teacher. And that's kind of the level that progression that I've gone through. And I never, I don't know what, what direction, what I'm going to get into past this though. Then Sheikh Uthman, with your Institute Critical Loyalty, um, mm -hmm. where does the name come from and what do you aim to accomplish? Critical Loyalty, long time ago, was the name of a blog post that I started. Um, I used to teach, it was a blog post, and the purpose of the blog post was to, was to we're loyal Muslims, but we're also critical thinkers. That's where critical loyalty came from. And uh, when I was, and, and eventually I decided to, I was teaching Tajweed and all that stuff was already there. But I thought it's such a brilliant concept. That's so conceited. But I thought it's such a brilliant concept. So what I decided to do was put all of the all of my classes under critical loyalty and made critical loyalty the bigger the bigger picture there. All of the courses that we teach at critical loyalty are very much talking about this philosophy here, though. The idea of going classical. We look at things from a classical point of view. So we don't teach in Tajweed anymore. We don't teach books from Ibn al-Jazari. Ibn al-Jazari is a traditional scholar of Tajweed. We teach books from like... Abu Mazahim Khaqani, the first ever person to ever write on Tajweed, we pick up his book. We don't we 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 we, we pick up we pick up the books of of, of Usul al Hadith from the originators, from Imam Tirmidhi, from Imam Muslim. We look at what they've said. We take a very different, a very classical approach to all of the sciences. And what that does, I feel like a classical approach is an approach that's extremely um, it, it, it challenges a lot of what we believe, which makes it very critical, but it also makes us a lot more of loyal Muslim or loyal to Islam. But then, Sheikh Uthman, how would you respond to people who say, for instance, um, us as Muslims living in the 21st century, we can't really go back to works 14 centuries ago without um, first understanding understanding it from scholars from our time and studying texts that have been codified for the purpose of simplifying the knowledge for us to understand at our level. Because of course, um, if you were to give a, an ordinary Muslim, even an Arab, the Quran and tell him, go ahead, read this, interpret it. Their Arabic isn't at that level yet. Um, their fiqh isn't at the level where they can read a hadith and derive fiqh rulings. So like uh, what I'm trying to get at is, don't you think the process the scholars have... Um, 
put down the foundational text and stuff like that is very important. It's like I'm talking about at, at a beginner level until a person is able to reach the level where they themselves can delve into the deeper so classical original text. The, the, the Quran is revealed to who? To the uh, Meccan Arabs the, or all of humanity? The Bedouins. Right? Yeah. It's revealed to the Bedouins. Ummi. Inna ummatun ummiya. So who are who is anyone to say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cannot give guidance to someone just by person reading the Quran? Anyone can anyone make that claim? That would be shirk, isn't it? That's straight shirk. Like that that straight up shirk. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala requires someone to talk to you. So therefore Allah's message has to go through someone else. As you start to study, theoretically speaking, your answer is completely correct. The question is completely correct. Practically speaking, I've seen too many people stop people from reading the Quran, looking at the Sunnah. Too many people. And they're like, you need to understand the Quran based on how this scholar said. Why? Is it because Allah has inspired the scholar or something? Well, if Allah has inspired something to the scholar, then there's no legitimacy for that at all within the religion of Islam. Because now you're following the inspiration of a scholar and now you believe that the scholar has some sort of way. So the same question can be completely flipped and asked back, who created those who created those rules or those limitations? And as you start to walk the path, as you start to look into the Quran, you will have questions, right? Or whatever. And then who are you going to refer to at that point anyways? Right. That's the point. Instead of stopping people from going and getting to that, let them go through it. Because that's when they're going to get the questions. Because if you're trying to say that someone's going to, someone's going to graduate or someone's going to become um, a classical Muslim, is that posing a threat to a traditional Muslim? Is it? I guess maybe like uh, in an international sense. Well, it is, right? It's a major threat. But why is it a threat? And these are the questions that you want to ask yourself. Why, why is someone who is taking a classical approach so threatening to the traditional approach? I'll give you another example here. Why is it such a threat when someone like me who's been connected to the Quran and teaching the Quran for, man, I have more than two, 3,000 students who have finished their hips under me. Why is it such a major threat that I would say that the typical system of memorizing Quran and madrasas is, shouldn't be done? It should be done a different, a different way. Why is it a threat if I was to say this to a hips school? You're, you're challenging the way they're doing things? I'll give you another example. Um, I, went to a, a, I went to a hip school in, um, I'm not going to say where, <laughs> but I went to a hip school somewhere. And uh, they asked me, they're like, Sheikh, you're here, please give a lecture and this and that. And I gave, I gave a lecture, a nice little lecture. And I was, taking, so I was sitting with the students and I sat, down with the, I sat down with the teacher, sorry. And I said, I, I said, my advice to every one of you is ask every single student which one of you are forced to memorize? 
And if they're forced to memorize, don't teach them. Tell their parents and send them back home because you don't want to shove religion down someone's throat. Am I saying anything wrong? The, the one concern people might have is if you tell them to go back home, then wouldn't that essentially be cutting off their only source of Quran? As in like, if they go back home, now they won't be reading Quran and they won't be looking into developing a love for the Quran. Instead, they'll follow their perhaps their non-Muslim friends or like that's the only source of connection they have to the deen. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying but that's fine. It's good. I, I love your devil's advocate approach. You're taking the other side. It's cool. But how sure are you that that's what's going to happen? Not 100%. So if it's not 100% sure, then can you say that the other way is, which one's more correct? Force religion down someone's throat? We're living in the West now, right? We're living in North America here. If We're, we're literally living in a place where they're going to say religion is bad, bad, bad. So what are we going to do? Shove it down someone's throat. So now you have a Hafiz who hates the Quran. Think about how many Hafiz actually want to lead the Rawi or get depression when the month of Ramadan comes in. I'm not, I'm, I'm not telling you this. I, I used to be the one who had to leave there always for them. Please just do it the 17th of We can't do it this and that. So, so, so the question, if, if, if I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. I was talking and I, 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 said, I said this to the teachers. I said, you know what? Um, if the students are being forced to, they don't want to do it, then they should be put on hold. Tell them, go take a week off. I've done this with my own students. Someone's like, oh my God, I'm getting tired. I'm like, go home. Come, don't come to school tomorrow. They thought they were in trouble. I'm like, no, no, take two, three days off. Go with a fresh mind and come back if you want. This was when, like 20 years ago. Or you, so when I was talking to these, these teachers, I said, give them some time off. If they're being forced, don't shove the Quran down their throat. They're going to hate it. Later on, they're going to hate it. Even though they might say, oh, we don't hate it. We don't hate it. doesn't matter. They will. So one of the teachers said, may Allah make you forget the Quran. But he cursed me. But the point here is why was what I was saying such a threat to them? You're challenging the very essence of what they do. And, and, and I'm replacing it with what? That would be a question for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm replacing it with Give them the true essence of the Quran. I don't think, but a lot of those teachers perhaps wouldn't be qualified to do that. As in like what they've learned from their teachers and their teachers, what they've learned from their teachers is memorize, 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 not necessarily living and applying it. I'm not sure if that's a fair generalization. That's good though. Where does it start from? Definitely not at the time of the Prophet. All I'm saying is let's go back to what the Prophet did. And I'm being right. pretty hardcore about this. I'm like, dude, follow the Quran and the Sunnah. <laughs> right. So how, like, what do you think a Western Muslim's approach to the Quran should look like? What what role should the Quran play in their life? And how do they reach that point uh, the with the language next, barrier? That's an excellent question. Start with translation. Pick up the translation. Oh, yeah, but translation is going to be wrong. Sure, it doesn't matter. Start off with that, right? and appreciate, start to love what the Quran is. It all starts off with the fact that we need to start to appreciate that the Quran is the word of Allah. We live in this world, Allah created the world. Remember the whole game analogy I made? Understand what we are doing here. Remember that the Quran is the word of Allah. The Quran is telling us how to live. And then when we, when we see that the Quran is the word of Allah and the Quran is telling us how to live, 
when we start implementing that into our life, then a person instinctively is going to want to un, want to learn the language of the Quran. Go back to learn the language of the Quran. That would take a whole life. That would take so many years. How do we approach the Quran? Those four things that I said. Those four things are crucial. If we're not doing those four things, I mean, don't just stick to one thing and keep going. I'm talking about the Uthman bin Affan and and, and, and I refer to this in, in, in critical loyalties in the first Tajweed course that I teach that they, they used they didn't um, they didn't read more than ten ayat. It wasn't learning ten ayat. It was learning it, how to practice on it, and putting it into their life. And then they moved ahead. This is what the Sahaba did. This is exactly what I'm saying to do. But this poses the biggest threat to any hip school. Who's wrong? So then, it's the economy, right? Right. So, but how would we institutionalize that? If the approach is 10 ayahs and then learn and apply, then how would a most Islamic school look like? Exactly like that. As in, like, your lesson for today is these 10 ayahs, let's memorize and apply them. But then each student would apply at their own pace at a different level, and then you couldn't develop a curriculum standardized for everyone. Why do you need to standardize a curriculum? Sorry? Why does there need to be a standardized curriculum of the Quran? What's the name? I think uh, Ariz, Ariz, that's your name, right? Uh, he, he was saying everyone starts from the first shows and then people go at their own paces anyways. Right. But like you're not a fan of um, memorization by itself? Not anymore. What about memorization and tafsir? And then the application, it's the stu it's on the student. It's the student's onus to do that by themselves. Nope. But then how does a teacher, say a teacher has 20 students, how do they instill the love of the Quran and um, really make sure that students are applying it? I teach, man, my, my, next, <laughs> my next Ijazah course has about 40 students in it already. And I literally do this for a year. It's not hard. Do you mind me asking how? Huh? It's not hard. You, you, you. I read to them the verse or the five verses or the 10 verses of the one page. I read it to them. I tell them, make sure by the end of next week, you guys have this perfectly how I've read it. You can record me and listen to me a million times. I don't care. Your recitation has to be perfect. Next, um, how, and I, I, I teach, I, within the class, I'll teach them how to, how to ethically change your life according to it, and everyone's different. And number three, how to understand what the verses are trying to say. And number four, how to project that into your future. That takes a whole lifetime. That takes four weeks, about a month, two months, and I was like, even get one page down. And everyone understands it differently. But if you give an assignment, for example, I gave you guys an assignment of craving death. You guys all need to crave death. It's going to take you, you're going to be thinking about it for the first three days, right? And if you actually have to submit an assignment into me, normally, if you don't have to submit an assignment into me, you're going to think about it and then you'll forget about it. Normally. If you have to submit that assignment to me on Saturday, you're going to think about it and you're going to try to put something down on a piece of paper because you know if you don't do it, you're going to fail. You'll... That's the only way to get people moving ahead is as a teacher, you give homework, you tell them to uh, give them your homework, and then you can you know how much homework the person actually did just by looking at the work that they've submitted to you. Every teacher.
every teacher knows. I know all of the reflection papers that was written um, um, the night before <laughs> versus like a week before. You guys know the differences in your own papers that you guys have to write, right? You know, like overnight papers are a lot, <laughs> a lot more different than something you wrote like beginning of the semester that you took your time. All right. So, um, Sheikh, then before we move on to the final topic, um, we'll try to keep it brief, which is um, studying health and, and um, nutrition. Were there any things we missed that you'd like to highlight or point out regarding seeking knowledge, memorizing the Quran, connecting with the Quran, applying Islam in our daily lives? Anything, not, uh, anything, any thoughts? Nothing, nothing that I have, but I know that you guys are going to have a lot more stuff to, to add on to this because you guys are going to be publish, publicizing this and thinking about what I said. So your, your questions are going to be what what's going to be sending me an email in a few months or maybe a few days or whatever. I don't, I don't really have um, much more to add on to this.